Good morning. All right. Um, hey, so y'all all know me. If someone watches online or listens later, my name's Josh. I serve as the lead pastor of, yeah, no, I want to woo too. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Um, yeah, so uh, I serve as lead pastor at, uh, at Refuge. And so, yeah, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this again. How's everybody doing today? All right, I, I need your energy because I just got through basically looking at y'all and being like, I'm having a kind of cruddy morning, so I'm going to need your energy, all right, to get me through the day. So, uh, yeah, what we're going to do right now is we're going to head into our time in the Scriptures. And what that means is we're just going to open the Bible. We're going to work through some things together because we believe at Refuge that as we engage the Scriptures, right, we engage the Bible, what we call the Word of God, uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit interacts with us. And through the Spirit's work as we engage these words, uh, our lives are changed. He shapes us. He forms us. Uh, and, and so every week, we don't just sing songs. We don't just take communion. We also spend some time in God's Word, reading it and, and approaching it together. And that's what we're going to do right now. And so um, we're continuing a sermon series. That's the idea of just a, a series of topics that we're covering uh, entitled Ashes to Ashes. And it's focusing on the season of Lent. Uh, I know better than to make a, a joke about Lent versus Lent, because I did that last week, and one of you laughed. Uh, <laughs> and so the season of Lent, where we're really preparing our hearts uh, to enter into the day where we acknowledge, where we, we worship almost through the morning of Jesus' death, while also preparing to celebrate his resurrection. Uh, and that season of Lent is really the, 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 the idea of, of really preparing our hearts for that. And so you've probably noticed through the course of uh, the last few weeks that we have not necessarily focused on cheerful subject matter. Uh, a lot of it has been oftentimes very challenging. Last week we talked about repentance, everyone's favorite church subject. Uh, and I hope that's encouraging. But this week we're kind of finally taking a little bit of a turn from that uh, idea a bit, because from repentance, if we really evaluate the next, the next flow in terms of like what the Christian life looks like, from repentance oftentimes comes the truth or the reality of new life. Everyone say new life. What is new life? We, we hear this idea uh, in the Bible oftentimes, specifically in the New Testament, and, and really uh, putting it basic is, is the new life that we have in Christ is, is Christ's remaking of our hearts. Christ's remaking of our hearts. Um, there's so much in the Bible about the heart of, of human, humanity, human hearts, and, and how God interacts with those hearts and what he does and, and what the goal of, of recreation, how he renews us, gives us new life, like what the goal of that is. And yet as we work our way to that idea of a new life in Christ, right, our hearts, our souls, our, our natures being remade. There's so much that we oftentimes don't see we, in, in favor of seeing all the good stuff, right? Like I said, these times are, uh, are kind of challenging in terms of going through Lent because we focus on things we don't usually like to focus on. Uh, and, and to be quite honest, in our culture, we don't tend to, to lean into the things we don't like to focus on. We tend to be like, ah, repentance? No, 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 I'm not about that. Jesus loves me. <laughs> now you're talking, right? And it's like, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that one, right? Uh, you know, like, uh, so, so when we think about new life, we oftentimes do think about, hey, I'm going to come in faith, and, uh, and, and uh, Jesus is going to accept me, and, and he, he forgives me. Uh, and yet there's a whole world that we're leaving behind in a lot of ways. 
when we actually embrace that truth. And, and without the understanding of what we leave behind in favor of pursuing this new life, it may be the case that we may be loved by God, may be accepted and forgiven by God, but our actual life is, is not the lifestyle, nor is it the practice of the new life. And that's, what, that's why we kind of want to focus on that today, so that we can ensure that as we walk in this feeling of freedom and forgiveness, we actually put into practice this idea of how do I walk out the new life that Christ has given me? And so we're going to work through Ephesians, and we're going to work through a couple of, uh, a couple of ideas here in, in Ephesians 2.10. Uh, excuse me. And we're going to go ahead and just start from verse 1. And verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All right. Pretty straightforward here. We're getting down to business. As, as my good friend and cousin Nacho Libre would say, uh, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, okay? Uh, right from the jump, we're, we're approaching the subject matter. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But how's this? What does that mean? What does that mean? <coughs> I, that is a rhetorical question this time, though. I, I respect the fact that you may question whether it was or not, because I do ask a lot of questions. However, we assume what that means oftentimes, but what does it really mean is, is the challenge. And I think to know what it really means, we first have to start with the first word, a word that we usually don't connect uh, in this verse many times to the meaning of it. But you put uh, verse one back up real quick. It's this word. What is that word? And, very simple word, right? And, what is and? And is important because here the word and in verse one connects us back to an idea or a truth that's been building out since chapter one. If it just said, you're dead in trespasses and sins, that would be one thing. But Paul's saying, and you're dead in trespasses and sins. So what is he alluding to? Many scholars, and I would agree with this group, there are other groups that have different opinions, but I would agree with this group, believes that this is connected back to chapter 1 in verses 18 through 20, <coughs> excuse me, that say this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, that is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Everybody say power. Of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And so God is giving power to the saints of God, to the followers of Jesus. That power is, is both the result and the cause of us seeing him in a glorious way and our hearts being moved and stirred. But he connects this power to something really important in verse 20. He exercised this power. Everyone say power. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. And so that's where the connection is starting to come. This idea, right, that God's resurrection power, that same power that saw Christ dead in the grave and brought back to life, is now going to be the same power that's going to start, we're going to look at as we uh, are introduced to the reality that we too were dead. That we too were dead. And so Paul, right from the get-go, is connecting this idea that your deadness, right, your deadness in your sins and your trespasses and your rebellion and your disobedience toward God, right, there's, there's a solution that God has provided, and that is his power. 
And while like Christ was dead, but is now resurrected, we too were dead, but are now going to be resurrected in some way, right? And here's what, lead, here's what I'm bringing this up to you, because this leads us to our, our first point, our first idea, that in new life, God changes us. In new life, God changes us. <clears throat> and from the jump, this needs to be something that we wrestle with. Because oftentimes we come to church, oftentimes we think about changing our lives, oftentimes we think about what it means to follow Jesus, and very rarely is it a disposition of dependence on God changing me. And it very regularly is a disposition of dependence on me changing me. And I'm not absolving us of responsibility. Merely pointing out the fact that for many of us, we walk in here with the holiest of intentions. We walk in here desiring to see our lives made more like Jesus. We come to church, we go to Bible study. Some of y'all are monsters at your devotional life. Like you pray more than I've, you pray in like a week more than I've prayed in like five years. Some of y'all read your Bible. Some, I've seen some of y'all be like, hey, I'm on this reading plan where I read like two hours a day. And I'm like, how do you even have time for that? That's amazing. That's, I don't read two hours again, and I'm going to say wait. I'll probably read more than that. But point being, that's a lot in a day. Y'all are killing that. You, but the problem underneath it is that you think, because we have the tendency to think, that those things bring us new life, that those things change us. And the more we give ourselves to those things, the more God will change us. But the truth is, God changes us, right? God changes us. And the beautiful part to that is that he doesn't need a Bible. He doesn't need your prayer life. He doesn't need a song. He doesn't need a difficult circumstance. He doesn't need a good circumstance. He can do it however he wants to because he's God. And it's his power that moves in us and changes us. And so in new life, God changes us. Um, there was this time when I was in college, and a lot of y'all have heard this story, um, where I, I, was, I aggressively shared my faith in undergrad. I mean aggressively. By aggressively, I got saved in a pretty radical, radical quote-unquote, radical way. And so I got up and I was like, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z anymore. And God just really changed my heart. And so from there, I, I went out and I was like, okay, my idea then is I read the Bible, started reading the New Testament. I got through Acts, and I was like, it seems that the, the people of God, they come to faith, and they just really aggressively go talk to people about Jesus. And so as any immature believer would do, I was like, to be a good Christian, I got to talk to 25 people a day about Jesus. Because why not put some arbitrary number on myself that told me whether God loved me or not, uh, and whether God accepted me or not? Why not do that? Uh, and so in my immaturity, that was my vision for the day. And I basically was just like, I'm going to stop going to class. I'm going to stop doing anything, everything. If I was doing my grocery shopping, I'd be like, yo, the chip aisle is where it's at to get my quota in today. Because I go to the chip aisle and be like, yeah, a lot of chips, right? A lot of choices, kind of like life. And they're like, <laughs> and they're like aggressively go in on somebody. And in the midst of that, I do remember there was one young woman, me and a buddy of mine named Rainey. Uh, she, we, we, we shared, we, we asked this girl in the quad, can we pray for you? She responded back, you know, uh, sure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Rainy starts, Rainy was very plugged into like the Bethel culture of church. 
And so she was like, yeah, God, just like, and I know disrespect. If Rainy ever hears this, I love you. Uh, but she was like, you know, I just pray that she would like soak in your presence and that like she would just be stirred and see, you know, your, your actions manifest in her life. And I was like, I was looking at the girl and the girl was basically looking down like, she had just the, the pure look of like, what is happening right now? So I stopped Rainy real quick and I'm like, hey, hey, do you know what she's talking about? And she said, no, 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 I'm from Washington State. I came here to Texas. I wanted to come to Texas and, and this school accepted me. And so I came down here and uh, I have like maybe two Christian friends and I just know they follow the teachings of Jesus, but that's all I know. And so I said, okay, can I have 12 minutes of your time? Uh, because if I say 10 or 15, people are gonna say no. But if I say 12, no one knows how long 12 is. So she said, yes. Uh, I proceeded to take 20 and, uh, and give the most clunky gospel presentation I've given maybe my entire life. And at the end of that time, I prayed with that young woman, me and Randy prayed with that young woman in Evans, the Evans building at Texas State. And as people were coming into the halls and flooding and going to the next class, I was, me and Rainer praying with this girl in the corner and this girl is weeping. She is weeping. God is so vividly doing something in her life. It's not even funny. We finish up, she, she um, gives me and Rainy her number. She put this in a group text. I go proceed on my day and I was like, all right, that's 19, right? Like, <laughs> uh, that evening, I'm at my house, my apartment. And my, my phone goes off and it's Rainy and this random number, it's this, this girl that we spoke to. She's at Walmart and she takes a picture of the book aisle and says, is this the right thing that I should get? And she takes a picture of a Bible. She had no idea where to get a Bible. So she went to the logical place where you get anything, Walmart. <laughs> and she went to the aisle and said, is this the book I need to get? And it was such a beautiful moment because it helped me realize like, man, God did something in that woman's life that young girl's life. She was on her way to class. She encountered Rainy, who was gonna spit some fire charismatic Christianese to her. Uh, and I was gonna give a clunky, weird gospel presentation that was gonna take way too long. And in the midst of that, independent of whether Rainy was saying things that made sense to her, independent if I had the most polished gospel presentation, God was gonna change her. God was going to change her. And she was gonna leave that time with me and Rainy and she was gonna proceed on and go, something's different. I think I want a Bible. And she was gonna go to Walmart and get a Bible. God changes us. God changes us. We may spend our whole life saying, God, I wanna be this, I wanna be that. And we may give everything inside of us. But at the end of the day, friend, it's God that changes us. And in the spaces where he doesn't change us, it's his mercy that's sufficient for us. And so God changes us. And so you may be at this point thinking, okay, so God changes us. Does he just change us to like the churchy stuff? Like, should I not want prayer? And then all of a sudden God changes me and now I want to pray. I can tell you for a fact, that's not true. <laughs> so no, it's, it's, it's a little bit more than that, right? The change that Paul's talking about here is what Paul calls death to life. Death to life. And the death here is linked to something very specific. Let's look at verse two. Um, verse 1, uh, to reread it, and then let's go to verse 2. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. The trespasses and sins in which we walked according to the ways of this world. 
Okay, I'm going to do it again. Everybody say ways of this world. Okay. Ways of this world. This here phrase, right, this is important. It's actually really, really, really important. Why? Because in Paul's day, this was a common designation, a common description of the world that Paul lived in. It was often uh, used in contrast to another phrase called the age to come. So, so this, the literal word here is not ways of this world, it's the age of this world. So if you go back to like a King James Bible, or maybe most specifically like a New American Standard Bible in NASB, they're trying to keep it like mad, mad, like word for word. And sometimes you read it and you're like, I don't even know what that means. Um, and so in that, they're going to say age of this world. And so this age idea is one where it's the age of this world and it's contrasted with the age to come. And while the age to come is a world where God has made things right, he has entered into the world, he has made things right. This is very similar to that idea of the day of the Lord we talked about last week, right? He, he's come in, he's made the world right, he's fulfilled his design for the world. The current age, the age of the world that Paul's describing is a world where people do what they think is right. They make up their own rules and do what's right in their own eyes. This is, again, kind of what we talked about last week. And when discussing uh, this idea, the scary thing is, uh, is that for Paul, following the age of this world isn't innocent. And so you may be thinking, okay, that sounds like, to be honest, that sounds like just right, right? Like we go about our day and we do what we think is right and we do our best and we kind of figure out what is the best thing for me and what is the best thing for others? Uh, except for Paul would look at this and be like, actually, no. No, that line of thinking, of going, I'm going to choose what's best for me, I'm going to choose what's best for the world, is actually following the age of the world. And it's not innocent. In fact, he connected to the idea of following what he calls the ruler of the power of the air. And then he says that that ruler is the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, or the, the people that are disobedient. Sons of disobedient is old school. That's ESV language. We're reading the CSP today. Um, right, that spirit that's at work in those that are disobedient. If that wasn't scary enough, if it wasn't scary enough that following the age of this world, following our own compass on what's right or wrong is actually the same as following this spirit, this, this idea of following Satan, he also adds that, that this is kind of like our, our instinct, right? This, this, is, this is our instinct. And so in Ephesians 2, 3, he continues, we too all previously lived among them, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. In other words, our very nature, the very inclination of our flesh, the, the, the natural disposition to us is to follow our own way. And in following our own way, we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in disobedience, and following our own way, being our own judge, designing our own world based on what's right or wrong for us and what we think is the best, what we think is the worst, actually leads us to destruction. It places us under wrath, the wrath of God, but also the wrath of the design of the world around us. We made this, I, I, I'd say, have said this frequently, and maybe it's for a reason. Maybe I'm just stuck on it in my own life. Maybe... I'm stuck on it in my own life because some of you need to hear it. So often we think we're doing the right thing. And because we haven't understood what God's desire for our lives is, we continue doing the right thing in our own mind, not realizing we're doing the wrong thing in God's mind. And we're heaping up curses and wrath for ourselves in the world. And then we come back and go, why isn't anything going right for me? 
And then we come back and go, God, why are you treating me this way? All while God is kind of like, dude, that's you. You're the one that's walking through life being like, hey, I think this is the best thing. I'm going to go for this. Meanwhile, the world that I've designed, it responds to that choice in wrath and curse. That's on you doing that, not on me. So our very nature leads us, leads us to destruction and wrath because our very nature is to follow the age of this world. That is to follow our own vision of what's right and what's wrong, to be our own judge. And that leads us to our second point, friends. In new life, right, the change God makes, we can't make on our own. Why? Because it's our instinct, it's our inclination to follow the age of this world. Notice that he doesn't say it's our inclination, it's our instinct to follow God. But somehow we're just persuaded the other way, right? We're just, we're just persuaded, we're, 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 we're born and we're like, I'm going to love God. And then slowly but surely there's just a little, hey, why don't you do this? That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is we enter into this beautiful world that God has designed. And because of our own sinfulness, our inclination, our instinct is to look at the world and begin to shape the world according to our own thoughts, our own ways, our own definitions. And because that's our instinct, because that's our inclination, the change that God makes is a change that we can't make. Only God can make. And so, from the jump, it's God that changes us. And regarding that change, it's a change that only God can make. We cannot make that change. We can't do it on our own. Uh, when thinking about what this looks like, uh, I, of course, thought of my children. Like, you know, of course, uh, it's not hard. Anybody that has kids or nieces or nephews or, uh, or just have been exposed to a child for longer than six seconds uh, knows that there is this just inclination for them to be like, hey, I want this. Hey, I want to do this. And my, my, my son, my oldest son, um, he's at that age where he's learning some of this stuff. And so we'll have these moments where he'll be running around with this Hulk, right? He has this Hulk. And he's all running around with it. And let's say I'm on the couch and like an iPad is here or a phone or a computer or anything really that's of value to me that he can sense dad wants this thing. He just runs over with this Hulk and is like, Tugga! it's just his instinct. His instinct is like, you like that thing? I'm going to destroy that thing. And then I'll stop and I'll be like, hey, buddy, 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 what are you doing? Why'd you do that? I wanted to. And I'm like, okay, can I have that Hulk? And then he'll give it to me. And he started, he started wising up to this now, but at first, this is, what we, this is what I was trying. He would give it to me, and I was like, okay, buddy, I want to break this Hulk right now. To be quite frank, I'm angry at you. I'm frustrated with you. And I'm about ready to make this Hulk, in, this Hulk into like Hulk stew. I'm just going to break it apart and throw it in the trash. And he's like, no. I'm like, why? I want to. And he's like, but it's mine. I'm like, okay, it's yours, but I want to break this Hulk desperately bad right now. I really do, and the thing is, I'm not lying to him at that point. It's like, <laughs> you want to break my stuff, bro? I honestly want to break your stuff, too. Like, legitimately, I want to break it so bad. It would bring me so much joy, dude, to break your Hulk right now. And so he's like, no, it's mine. And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that I should respect your stuff, and even if I don't do what I want to do? And he's like, yes. And he's like, oh, okay, buddy, maybe, maybe that's like something you should learn too. Maybe like you should respect my things. And even if it means not doing what you want to do, what your instinct is. 
No. Okay, okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. However, right, that's a funny story, but if I'm being honest, I don't really know the difference, the grand difference between my son uh, in that moment and the majority of people that are, and, and, you know, no disrespect to them, but a majority of the people that are out on 36th Street at 1 a.m. besides maybe 20 years and a, and a little bit more money. To be quite frank, I don't really see the difference between those two groups. Because that's, that's a little bit where we get tripped up, right? Um, there's still this thought at the end of the day, at the end of the week, right, where, where you get off of work and, and X, Y, and Z, and then it's like, I'm going to go do what I want to do. I'm going to go live how I want to live. I'm going to go relieve my pressures the way I want to relieve my pressures. I'm going to go get my mind off of things the way I want to get my mind off of things. I'm going to go satisfy my needs the way I want to satisfy my needs. And that's where we get tripped up because we don't often relate to Paul's idea here. We don't relate uh, to my story about my son because we think, well, I go to work. I get schoolwork done. Uh, you know, like I take care of a spouse or I take care of children or, or I actually stop myself from breaking this hulk. And Lord knows I really wanted to break this hulk. And we think <coughs> that these ideas, Paul's ideas, this idea with, with my son, it couldn't possibly apply to us. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about a three-year-old that runs around and just constantly says, I do what I want to do 24-7. I never don't do what I want to do. I always do what I want to do. Right? Because here's the thing. Everybody gets up for work. Everybody gets up, goes to work. Everybody cares for others. It's when all that is over and you need to seek rest for your heart and rest for your mind and rest for your body. And if the response of your heart, of your mind, of your body is I'm not going to pay too much consideration to what God desires for me in this moment. That's what Paul's talking about. Everybody in his day that he's describing right now did all the same things you do. They took care of their family. They went to work. They took care of the responsibilities that naturally added up because life gives you responsibilities. In fact, we universally now and then look at people who just, just, just kind of avoid all sense of responsibility and go, there's something wrong with that person. There's something wrong with that person. They're not, they're not functioning right. So it's not about just taking care of responsibility. It's about when the responsibility is done and the aches of your heart start to whisper to your ear, when nothing in you says, God, what do I do? Where do I go? What do you want for me? How can I seek you? How can I know you? And that may be, I'm not saying that that always means opening a Bible. I know some of y'all like a mountain, like an unreasonable amount. And if it's your thing to like, you wanna go, cause we're in Austin, your best thing is like, what is that, the, the Mount Bonnell? Yeah, if it's like that's the best thing you got because you can't afford to go to the Rocky Mountain National Park right now, go do that. That may be what God's calling you to, but it's oftentimes when we go, hey, I'm in the midst of that aching, I'm in the midst of that need for rest, and I don't really care what you have for me or what you want for me, I'm going to do what I think is good right now. Right, that, that release of going, whatever I want is what I'm going to do, whatever I need is what I'm going to pursue, that's the thing that Paul's talking about here. And according to Paul, our natural inclination, what our flesh wants, right, is that. That's the natural inclination of it. And at this point, this may sound a little frustrating uh, because it may sound uh, discouraging. I'm telling you, you can't change yourself. Uh, I'm telling you that the inclination to change yourself is actually kind of more on route of leading you to destruction than it is leading you to life. And so there's really that moment where you're like, well, what do I do? Because you're telling me that 
I have this natural idea of doing what's right in my own mind, and that leads to destruction for myself and for the world around me. And in addition to that, that urge that I have to fix myself, that urge that I have to try and make myself right, to try and get myself in, in line with God, and that urge that I have to try and prove to God that I'm actually not a screw-up and that I actually am not this guy that just has this weird inclination to do bad things, that that's also not the right thing. So what is it that's the right, <coughs> the right thing? And that's where verse 4 comes in with these beautiful words that we've all heard before, um, but are powerful nonetheless, but God. Let's, let's read 4 through 10 uh, the rest of the way through here. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for, uh, his great love that he had for us, has made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's that word again, the coming ages. So that when everything is made new and everything is set right, he may display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift from God. Not from works, so that no one can boast. It's not from the Bible reading. It's not from the, the praying. It's not even from the strong desire you have to get right. No, it's, it's from God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. After understanding what the first three verses are saying, four through ten go hard. Four through ten are powerful. Because they reveal who we are. They reveal our propensity, our instinct. They reveal that there's no direction that that instinct can go. There's no direction that our nature can go besides the direction of destruction. But God, being rich in mercy, saves us of his own accord, of his own desire, of his own power. So what does God do in response to seeing us violently go in the wrong direction? Does he look at us and say, man, they keep screwing up day by day. Count us as a lost cause and give up? No. Out of uh, kindness and compassion and mercy, right, here enters the, the person of Jesus into the story. And he submits to God, right, and he beautifully displays what the age to come is going to be, right? Someone that would walk around and correct and bring justice to what needs correction and bring healing and wholeness to those that need healing and wholeness, and to steward the world in this beautiful and powerful way. He perfectly embodies it, this beautiful world where God makes things right. And yet he recognizes that no matter how beautiful he makes the world, no matter how beautiful he, he shapes the world around him, those that he loves and those that he's serving will always struggle because of the darkness in us, right? Our nature our inclination, that even in the face of Jesus, we would look and somehow, looking at the mercy and the kindness of the Messiah, Judas would be like, I'll sell you for 30 pieces of silver. Right? That no matter how beautiful he is and how beautiful he's displaying during his time on earth, that there's still that darkness raging in us. And so he does the unthinkable. He takes on the darkness. Right? He takes on the darkness, but not by destroying each and every one of us. 
Because to be quite honest, that would be the easy way out. I don't know if you ever had an ant pile in your backyard, but none of us are like, I'm going to just, I'm going to completely like reform this ant pile. They're going to become gardeners. No, we go out and we just take like a can of granular poison. And it's like, all right, all of y'all see y'all in heaven. And it's like, <laughs> and right, that's our instinct. But that's not God's instinct. Because again, maybe the instincts are different. He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't wipe us off. But, but by allowing the darkness in us, the darkness in our current world, the darkness of the age, right, uh, to, to overcome him, to overpower him, he takes on the cross and invites the darkness of the world to overcome him. And sin exhausts its power on Jesus, and sin's exhaustive power leaves him dead and lifeless in a tomb. And you remember where we started? Ephesians 1.20, and he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Right, that Christ doesn't stay dead, but in victory, he robs sin of its power, its power of destruction, its power of guilt and shame, even its power of death. And he invites all of us who, who believe in him, who follow him, who place our faith in him, to receive new life in him. Not new life marked by the pain of the cross, but new life marked by the victory of the resurrection. Right, that just like Christ raised Jesus from the dead, likewise, we who are dead in sin are now raised to life as we follow this Jesus. That's fascinating to me. That's fascinating to me. I don't know if it's fascinating to you. If it's fascinating to me, because I remember when I came to faith, I told y'all I'd had a pretty radical little thing where I was like, I'm gonna set aside all the, all the drugs and all the things. <coughs> That's powerful, it's, you know, I, I understand that part is what I oftentimes bring up when I'm talking to people. But I remember maybe like a week later, uh, I went to my dad and I was like, hey, I got a song that I think we can sing at church. I remember he looked at me and he was like, dang, that's different. And he was like, I don't think I've ever heard you say that before. Because I was dead. My inclination was never to serve the body, to serve the church, to serve Jesus. I was dead. And then Christ joined me in my death by taking on the darkness of the world and laying in a tomb in my stead so that in his resurrection, he could bring me from death to life so that one day I could say, I'm going to do whatever I want, listen to whatever I want to, and that through that work in my heart, I would be like, I think we could sing this in church. I think that this would bless people. It seems so small, friends, 
it seems so small. But it's oftentimes in that smallness that God builds a beautiful life that begins to bless the world around you. There's a Greek uh, print, like, like kind of little saying that says the world is most beautiful when men plant trees in whose shade they will never rest. Right? All these little choices, all these little movements of just saying, hey, instead of listening to D'Angelo, who I was obsessed with at this time, I'm listening to Hillsong. It's a dramatic departure. It's a dramatic departure. But that little change led to another little change, led to another little change, led to another little moment of being like, I think I should go evangelize, which led to a girl getting saved, which led to me joining uh, a, a ministry where I met my wife, which then led to me getting hired at the church that we were at, which then led to me going to the well because I got hired there, which led to me being in front of you right now. Right? It doesn't have to be something major every time. But when God changes us, when he takes us from death to life, he begins organizing our life in accordance with the age to come. And now it's my honor to stand in front of you today, any day, and be able to share the truth of who this Jesus is. Right? How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? That in that man on that cross, he joined you in the instinct to death, joined you to the consequences, right, of our instincts so that we could be joined to the reward of his life in victory, in forgiveness, in new life. And that's actually how he finishes, right? How he finishes in verse 10 is, man, you're his workmanship. What that means is, and y'all have probably heard this before, it's like the artistic influence of this is like a, this is like a piece of art that God has shaped and formed. But it's beautiful because when he says, and now you've been made for good works that, that God has prepared, he's contrasting it to that old way of life, that death where you in no way did what God defined as good, but you only did what you defined as good and what you defined as wrong, and oftentimes brought death and pain to those around you. But now, because Christ has made you alive from that death, you're now his workmanship, and you're made for good works. That's incredible. And here's the thing. I don't know how that happens. I don't know the, I can't tell you the mechanics of how Jesus does this. I can't be like, and here's the one, two, three, and make that happen. Because I don't think we can make that happen. God just makes the dead alive. And that's kind of where it starts. It's kind of where it stops. We come to him one day, feel convicted of our sin, and all of a sudden, we stop doing that sin. And, and that's, I, I don't know how to tell you. I don't know how to explain Here's how you do it. Here's your one, two, three step process. But that's why we stand up here every single week and just proclaim this Jesus because I know that he changes people. I know that he encourages hearts. I know that he takes ashes and makes them beautiful. I know that he takes the broken pieces of our life and makes them into a beautiful mosaic. And so we stand up here and we declare that Jesus so that you and me and everyone here can keep going to him and going, here's my heart. Here's what I'm, what I'm struggling with right now. And he meets us with, and look at the victorious Jesus in your stead. And somehow, some way, his spirit in us begins to change us. I don't know how. I don't know when. I, don't, I can't give you the one, two, three. But I know I'm going to sit up here as long as I can and point you to that resurrected Jesus because God changes us. And he changes us in ways that we can't change ourselves. And in that new life, in that change, our final point is that we're invited to be human the right way, God's way. We're invited to be human the right way.
contrary to popular belief, there are wrong ways to be human. There are wrong, and it's not like genocide is the only one, right? Anything that involves defining right and wrong by our own standards is in fact the wrong way. But yet in new life, God invites us to be human the right way. <clears throat> You're still gonna mess up. You're still gonna have struggles, but those struggles are now marked by a heart that desires to live God's way, right? A heart that desires to honor him, to love him. And instead of our failures being met with our own, our own instinct for guilt and proving, they're now met with grace and mercy that according to uh, Titus chapter two is what teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's in Titus 2, 12 and 13. You wanna cross check me? Uh, last story that I'll, I'll tell, and then I'm going to finish this up with a, a couple of practical takeaways. This uh, made me think of, uh, it made me think of me and my son Jude. Okay. So <laughs> uh, my oldest son Jude is three. Y'all all know him. And when he was born, I can't tell y'all how much my heart melted. Man, I saw that little boy come out and I... Something happened to me. It happened to me with Leah too, but it happened different. I don't, you know, I don't know how to communicate that. I can't tell you why. I just know that with my daughter, there was a different love. It was equal in, in severity and how deep it was, but it was different in its application, how I wanted to love her. And I saw him come out and I felt the same depth of being overwhelmed, but it, it was applied differently to this little boy. And I was just head over heels with him. And he was colicky when he came out, so he cried a lot. He cried. A, he cried more like a week than I have my whole life, I feel like. It was just, my man just went in on the crying. And that settled down, and he continued to grow. And over the past maybe like six months to nine months, we've noticed like some real challenges with him. You know, more than just like Hulk on the iPad, but some, some real tough moments. And it's broken my heart. The majority of me and my wife's conversations revolve around how to respond to Jude. And uh, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we were outside and I noticed something pretty dramatic. Inside, I'd be like, hey Jude, can you pick that up? And he'd be like, no. I'm like, brother, please, I'll give you a treat, give me a treat. And I'm like, but you gotta do that first. No. It's like, okay, this is getting intense. And outside, I'd be like, hey, Jude, can you pick that up? Okay. And then he'd bring it over to me and be like, can I do anything else? And I was just like, who are you? But I noticed that outside seemed to bring a certain type of change to him. And that made me really excited. Also made me kind of frustrated because I'm not an outside guy. I will go outside to play sports and to, to mess around a little bit. Maybe a hike if I'm really feeling nature that day. But like I've never been a I'm going to go outside today type of guy. I cut the grass when I have to, not when it starts looking bad. When it starts looking bad and it's like that, we can't walk in that. Then it's like, all right, I'll cut it. Um, and so that kind of had me a little bit like, dang it. But all of a sudden because I saw how much it helped him, I started being like, you know what, let's go outside. So I bought some 
bonsai trees, which y'all have all heard about. <laughs> I bought a raised garden bed. He planted some vegetables, and he'll be out there with the, like, the sprayer, just like. And I'm like, hey, buddy, hold on. And he's like. And even then, he's like listening way better than, than I, I never seen him listen before. Even yesterday, we planted a tree in the backyard. That's actually how I hurt my foot. Uh, and we got it for free. Shout out to Tree Folks, and shout out to Luis for even telling me who Tree Folks is. Um, go check them out if you want a free tree. <laughs> and to be honest, it's not a burden to me anymore. Three weeks I've grown to love outside. Not because outside is the most majestic. I still really hate cutting the grass. But because outside is good for him. That has made me really love outside. I'm probably going to go today, and the moment we get home, I'm going to change, and we're going to go outside. And I've cut my grass more times in the past two weeks than I ever thought I would have in a 14-day stretch. But because I love him, I'll go out there. I'll be out, I'll be out there 24 I'm going to be brown as all get out. But I'm going to be out there because of him. I think it's not that much different when we see the beauty of this, of this God who rich in mercy and kindness, who abounding in steadfast love. But God saw us and didn't write us off, but entered into the story and loved us and saved us and raised us from death to life, joined us in our death. There's no reason the Son of God should be laid in a tomb, lifeless, beaten, bloody. There's no reason, except that he'd be motivated by the depths of his love for me and for you. And when we can catch just a glimpse of that beauty and just a glimpse of that glory, the outside seems to become just a little bit better. What we instinctively did not want before has just a little bit more lore to it now. And that's why I will stand up here and proclaim the beauty of this Jesus to you as long as I can, for as many years as I can. And after that, I'll do it with someone, Dairy Queen or my kids or whoever. I don't know why I said Dairy Queen. Because of that. If we can get a glimpse of him in that way, man, the, the taste of sin will become a bit more bitter. And the taste of the age to come will get a bit more, a bit sweeter. Because he made us alive. And so, uh, with that... Couple of couple of takeaways, right? Can you put the first one up there, Misty? Because my mind is—I I didn't write them down. I kind of forgot what they are. <laughs> so, <coughs> first one is uh, find where you want to change and prove yourself. Uh, I think there are some times where, for us, we we some of us in here. Let me be very honest. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because I think there's a lot of us in here have a really great disposition toward inviting God to change us. And so even then, telling you that there's a part of you that wants to change yourself or part of you wants to prove yourself can be challenging because you don't look at your life and think that it's overall marked by this idea. The majority of your life, right, is like a, a, you feel pretty good, you're like resting on Christ, you go to him for forgiveness. Christians do that. And so that should be a regular part of your life. 
And it is for most of us, for almost all of us in here. I know everyone in here. <coughs> but there's still those lurking parts of our heart, right? They're just lurking. Sometimes they're associated with like mom issues, dad issues, cultural issues. Maybe someone was like racist to you when you were little or something like that. Like they can get shaped in all, in all kinds of ways. And there's something that gives you like the Hamilton effect, you know, like that. You listen to Hamilton and you're like, I want to be that guy. I want to go prove everyone wrong and rise to the top and be the cream of the crop, right? And, and it and moves us in that direction. And so find that. Do the work of finding that. If you do the work of finding that, I promise you the gospel is going to do like really powerful work there. And so uh, find where you want to change and prove yourself. Identify that in your own heart. What's the other one? I really can't remember. Is that uh, that might have been the only one. Um, either that, I forgot to put that bad boy in there. I think the last one was the same one that I, I said last week, which was rely on Christ and not yourself. I think that was it. But as we, uh, last application point, I did not write this down there or there. Um, seek to see a vision of like the glorified loving Jesus. Fight for that. I mean, really fight for that. Fight to see that, that man who bloody and broken joined us in the age of this world and took on the darkness of the world and resurrected in glory, right? Resurrected in victory, resurrected in power, and most importantly, resurrected in love for us to invite us into that life with him, right? Like, like man, fight for that. Really fight for that. Um, go to group, read your Bible, do all the things you normally do. But if you need to go to a, if you need to go to Mount Bonnell, like make time to get out there, you know, make time to do that. And so with that, let's pray uh, and let's, let's uh, finish up here this morning. Uh, Father, thank you so much for new life in you. Thank you, God, that as you uh, saw the depths of our sin and you see the depths of our sin, um, our disobedience toward you, and you recognize the darkness of it, that it wasn't even just this idea of like some mistakes, but it truly was us following an instinct uh, to make our own rules, to be rebellious against you, and to follow the enemy, to store up for us destruction, for ourselves destruction. Like you saw that and you didn't write us off, but you entered into our story. You joined in our experience and our wrestling match with darkness. You let the darkness overcome you so that in your resurrection, you could rob that darkness of any weapon it tries to utilize against us. And now you invite us into new life, uh, joined to your victorious resurrection. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We love you. We thank you. Let us fight to see a, glory, a glorified vision of who you are. Let that change us. Like, like me changing my view on the yard in order to love my son well. Father, let us catch a vision of who you are and let it change our hearts to serve you well, to follow you well. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.